Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. Hello everybody and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fist start this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And we are continuing on some foot and ankle. We are on to some foot trauma. In this episode, we'll talk a little bit about calcaneus, a little bit about midfoot. And if you all want to follow along, our podcast companion book that has all the notes that we are going by in this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes, is now available online via Amazon. Just click the link in the description that would help us out a bunch if you want to go and check that out has a bunch of images and i mean without further ado let's go ahead and hop into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole and you know we've decided that we're going to fix the this calc fracture um, what are the typical goals associated with open reduction internal fixation of the calcaneus? Like what are overall are you trying to do? So number one is articular reduction, just like any other um, articular base fracture, whether that is pilon, uh, plateau, uh, femoral head, uh, humeral head, whatever is to recreate a stable smooth articular surface. So that's number one. Uh, Number two is correct heel varus. Um, If you look at the insertion point for the Achilles on the uh, calcaneal tuberosity, you'll see that it is actually just medial to midline for the calcaneus. So when you have a fracture of the calcaneus and you have the pull of the Achilles tendon, that will tend to pull the uh, posterior fragment more medial and kick the entire calcaneus into varus. And so you want to correct that varus uh, in the calcaneus because literally for every fracture that you ever fix, varus is terrible. You want to avoid it as much as possible. So you want to correct the heel varus. And you also want to correct the shortening. Um, one for pull of the Achilles tendon and two for recreation of a stable hind foot for ambulation is if you can correct for the shortening and re-lengthen out that calcaneus, then they will have a much more stable calcaneus to, to walk on and to ambulate on down the road. So articular reduction, correcting the heel varus and correcting the shortening of the calcaneus are the primary goals of Uh, fixation. And so just like you said, we had our fracture. It's a young patient. They don't smoke. They're not diabetic. And they have articular surface uh, depression. You want to fix them. What are some of the options for operative treatment for this patient? Yeah. So, you know, reduction, internal fixation, and you can do these through a couple of different incisions. One could be a lateral extensile incision where you kind of make this L, um, L type incision on the lateral aspect of the calcaneus. And you do this, this, what you call a no touch technique where you put pins in some of the different bones in the foot and you're not touching uh, the skin or, you know, subcutaneous tissue because you're trying to do as less as the least amount of trauma as you can, because we know that these are, you know, uh, areas for 
high wound complications. And you also need to know that the sterile nerve is at risk with the lateral extended style incision, or you could also fix these to a limited sinus tarsi approach, which I think a lot of people are doing nowadays. Mm-hmm. And with the, you know, with the sinus tarsi, you have, you know, less complications. Um, again, it was these less invasive techniques like using the sinus tarsi approach. I think the outcomes between extensile incision and the sinus tarsi approach are, are pretty much equivalent. So you can get just as good as amount of, uh, just a good outcome as using the sinus tarsi versus a uh, lateral extensile. And then also, you know, in cases where there's a lot of uh, collapse, injectable calcium phosphate may, uh, injectable calcium phosphate cement, excuse me, may actually help allow some early weight bearing. Um, you could also percutaneously fix these if these fractures are amenable to that. You can percutaneously fix these with some screws. And if you are slick and you like the arthroscopy, you can use an arthroscopy if you like to visualize the, you know, the posterior facet or the subtalar joint, and you would like to, you know, fine tune your articular reduction. So those are some of the uh, operative treatment options for calcaneus fractures. Now, you know, we've been harping on you know, poor wound problems and smokers and making sure you get a good history. Uh, what factors are associated with poor outcomes after open reduction internal fixation of calc fractures? Yeah, so several things, obviously, yeah, smokers and diabetics, but also uh, age over 50 uh, males, because let's face it, males just complain a lot. Uh, obesity, um, which makes sense that the more weight you're putting through the hind foot as you walk, the really the worst outcome you're probably going to have. Um, laborers, if you have a, have a high demanding job that requires you to be up and down ladders, uh, carrying heavy bags of cement, heavy boxes, heavy whatever, uh, probably not going to do as well. Uh, workers comp, uh, no offense to workers comp patients, but uh it seems like their primary goal is to uh, never go back to work. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. so, and so um, obviously they're going to uh, baseline have a worse outcome purely because they are going to have a, a really a kind of a mental block to wanting to go back to the job that caused this injury in the first place. And, uh, and then uh Obviously, the, the, the smokers are really the, the biggest issue. I mean, you really got to get your patients to stop smoking if they have these sort of injuries because there's, there is really no coming back uh, from a dehist wound that causes osteomyelitis, failure, fixation, and all of that in a smoker who you otherwise could have uh, prevented uh, this sort of outcome. And so there is actually an article in the uh, GOT. It was about 20 years ago, but it, it's still 100% very relevant where they looked at age, gender, work capability, and workers' compensation in patients with displaced intraarticular calcaneus fractures. And they, they were the ones who really came up with these conclusions that age above 50, males, obese, laborers and those with workers comp had worse outcomes compared to uh, their match cohorts. So uh, complications rate, complication rates can be as high as 40%, which is uh, extremely high and, and ones that you want to avoid if at all possible uh, when you're out of practice. And so let's say, uh, unfortunately, you have a patient, they've developed a malunion. 
you see them in clinic, you diagnose it on the x-ray, they have a malunion. What, what's noted uh, you in most cases in regard to the position of the calcaneus and, and what it looks like on x-ray and physical exam? Yeah, so when you look at these, they might have a loss of height. Um, so, you know, you maybe got to use some of those angles that you measured, that you were talking about a little bit earlier. When you look on the lateral, you can look at the angle, uh, Bowler's angle and, and the angle of Gassane. You can see how these, um, you know, these malunions have really lost all their height. You can also see it on a Harris axial view. Um, varus malalignment, which you see pretty good on an axial view as well. And subfibular impingement. Um, this is where like you look and you see like, uh, that's almost like the calcaneus is right underneath the fibula. And so if you just think about it, you know, that's probably, um, irritating the perennial tendon. So they probably have some perennial ir tendon irritation with that as well as Taylor dec declination. Um, so the kind of the loss of, of this normal Taylor inclination seen when you have your, when you have your normal calcaneal height, but when you lose that height, the Taylor loses this normal um, inclination where it's angle a little bit downward and it starts to um, angle upward, I guess you could say, or, or declinate, um, declinate. So those are some of the things that you may note in these calcaneus malunions in the, in the position of the calcaneus. And so say we have a patient that has this calcaneus malunion that's shortened and it's in varus alignment again, because it's lost its height and it's in varus, you may have the uh, pull the Achilles, you know, maybe contributing to that a little bit as well. Uh, what's the treatment option for these patients? Yeah. So, uh, like I said before, obviously you want to avoid varus if at all possible. Um, but if they go on to develop a varus malunion, which is the most common type of malunion, you uh, will treat that with uh, bone block uh, arthrodesis, uh, subtalar arthrodesis, because um, it's, I mean, you're really not losing a lot of motion in the ankle. They might complain of walking on uneven surfaces if you do uh, arthrodes their subtalar joint, but um, to get this heel to heal uh, uh, and to, to get it to be a more functional hind foot, um, a, a distraction bone block subtalar arthrodesis is one that will create height in the calcaneus, it will create valgus in the calcaneus, and it will restore the normal valgus uh, hind foot uh, uh, positions. And um, moving on from calcaneus, so uh, kind of a brief uh, thing with calcaneus is uh, avoid operating on smokers and diabetics if you can. If not, you have to really counsel them and document clearly that you discuss with them that they're, they are at increased risk for complications and you want to restore the uh, calcaneal height, uh, any shortening, the articular surface, and any varus in the calcaneus, you will um, do the right thing for these patients. And so if you, if you remember those things, then you're probably going to answer most questions right on the exam, as well as making sure that they are not workers comp, that they are not heavy laborers and that their age is below 50. Th those things are going to really treat you well on the, on the test, but kind of moving on to the uh, midfoot is uh, kind of where do, uh, or what areas do avulsion fractures of the navicular uh, bone occur? 
Yeah, so there are a couple different areas of the uh, navicular where, again, these avulsion fractures can occur. One is at the dorsal lip, and when you see that, you're kind of looking in the lateral x-ray, and this is due to the deltoid ligament, uh, and it's going to be stressed during aversion. So when you have an injury, you have eversion of the foot, um, the deltoid ligament pulling on the navicular can cause an avulsion fracture. Um, if you have a medial avulsion, this can be due to the tibialis posterior, uh, you know, one of our our tendons that run behind the medial malleolus and come and attach, you know, we, you know, the tibialis posterior actually has a, a quite broad attachment on the bottom surface of the foot, but this is one of its attachments on your medial part of the navicular. If you're a little bit more plantar, you can think of the spring ligament. So the spring ligament may be pulling and causing an avulsion of the navicular there. And, uh, and to treat these, um, typically, you know, this for these avulsions, you could treat them with immobilization, and, um, and hopefully most patients get better with that. But if they are still symptomatic, you could um, opt for a delayed excision of those painful fragments. Now, if they have an avulsion and it is a particularly large fragment that involves a, a, a big amount of the articular surface, for example, like greater than 25% of the articular surface, you may actually have to go in and, and fix that open reduction internal fixation. Uh, you may use a screw, you may use a little plate, but in some type of way, those will need some fixation. And so those are the kind of those avulsion fractures in the navicular. Now, what is the treatment of a, a symptomatic non-union of the navicular tuberosity? Because somehow this is, I think I, when I was reading on this navicular, this popped up on like two or three different sources. And I was like, all right, well, might as well include it on here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, unfortunately, so how they will um, test the navicular is, uh, you'll either see a kind of a sagittal fracture through the navicular itself on a C, on an axial CT scan, and it'll have uh, some sort of fracture sclerosis. It'll it'll just look like a uh, subacute or chronic appearing fracture. So if you have a non-union of a navicular stress fracture, and they will always tell you it's probably a 18 or 19 year old female long distance runner uh, hasn't had a menstrual cycle in the last six months or has had irregular menstrual cycles in the last year and uh, doesn't uh, have an appropriate diet. So they're kind of, they're going to really push you down the female athlete triad for this stress fracture of the uh, navicular. Um, you're going to treat that with ORIF with and without bone grafting. And they're not going to give you both of those choices. It will either just be ORIF or observation. And uh, ORIF with a screw with and without bone graft is going to give you a stable fixation for the non-union. It will allow you to heal the bone. And you're going to take them out of running for about three months. And then you can slowly kind of get them back. But if it is a navicular tuberosity fracture where the uh, posterior tibial tendon attaches, what you're going to do is you're actually going to take that fragment out. You're going to detach it from the posterior tibial tendon. You're going to debride the end of the posterior tibial tendon. You're going to debride the fracture site, and you're going to reattach the posterior tibial tendon with a suture anchor or with bone tunnels or with whatever fixation me uh, method is uh, preferred by yourself or your attending um, to, to get that posterior tib tendon reattached to the navicular. So again, 
navicular tuberosity fracture is going to be a fragment excision and reattachment. And a navicular non-union is going to be ORAF with or without bone graft, depending on the amount of bone that is missing or uh, available for the fixation of the uh, navicular fracture. And let's say uh, you first see the patient a week after they develop midfoot pain because of uh, either chronic stress from running or a fall from height and you, and you diagnose them with a navicular stress fracture, what's the first treatment you're going to offer that patient? Yeah. So again, first thing you're going to have them non-op. So you're going to have them, they got to stay off of it. You're going to have them non-weight bearing. Now there are um, some sources that say, you just keep them non-weight bearing. You put them in a boot, some say cast, um, but in some way, shape or form, you want to have them non-weight bearing to that extremity for, again, for non-displaced navicular stress fracture. And again, that's like you said earlier, sometimes you may need a CT scan to diagnose these. And if it's a displaced fracture, you know, you may have to fix it. You know, if you have greater than X amount of millimeters of displacement, you need to fix it with a screw or something of some sort. And if you are treating these non-operatively, sometimes you may need to get a CT scan before, uh, you know, if you have an athlete before having them return to play. Um, so that's, I think that's what we got for the navicular. Now, where does the Liz Frank ligament insert and where does it attach to kind of moving down and getting now or a little bit more into the, into the midfoot? Yeah. So for, for those listening who have only taken one or two OITEs or haven't taken one yet, um, you can kind of forget about the navicular bone because it's not entirely high yield. And if you remember calcaneus, and if you remember Liz Frank for hind foot and midfoot fractures or injuries, you will answer most questions correctly. So um, again, just kind of a note to pay attention during the Liz Frank kind of injury discussion. So the Liz Frank ligament um, inserts, uh, or it, it uh, originates on the uh, base of the second metatarsal, and it inserts on the uh, lateral aspect of the medial cuneiform or the first cuneiform. And, and it's a very strong ligament. It has uh, several components to it, whereas the intraosseous component is the uh, most important, um, which it means it, that it's not the uh, plantar or dorsal aspect. It's the intraosseous component it is uh, is going to be uh, key to maintaining the Liz Frank joint um, and kind of moving forward. So we know where the Liz Frank ligament inserts and attaches to which of the tarsal bones is kind of known as the keystone arch of the foot. Yeah. So to answer your question, this is going to be the second metatarsal, um, you know, the base of the second metatarsal. And that's again, where the Liz Frank ligament uh, inserts on. And I actually meant to give a shout out to Dr. Dow, Thomas Dowd. He did a, we have a podcast with him on calcaneus fractures in case y'all are listening earlier and want to actually go and dive further into depth on calcaneus fractures and fixing those. And we also have a, a previous episode with Dr. Michaelis Hogan, who talked a little bit more about Liz Franks for those that are listening and want to go and listen a little bit more deeper into the Liz Frank injuries. Um, but yes, to continue on, answer your question, the bone that's known as the keystone of the foot 
is the second metatarsal, base of the second metatarsal. So when you look at the TMT joint or the tarsal metatarsal joint, so again, where these tarsal bones meet the metatarsals, the lateral TMT joints have um, a little bit more motion than the medial. So the lateral has about 10 degrees of motion and you wanna keep that motion if you can. And the medial has a limited um, amount of motion. I think we'll probably talk a little bit later about fixing some of these kind of midfoot injuries and um, and and why this amount of motion is is pertinent. Um, moving forward, what is the typical mechanism for a TMT fracture dislocation or tarsal metatarsal fracture dislocations? What is the typical mechanism of injury for these uh, patients? Uh, usually, it's either a uh, a direct force uh, or a crush injury to the uh, midfoot, whether that is at work, um, usually in uh, like auto mechanics. I, I feel like the most most of these kind of direct crush injuries were auto mechanics who had a, a car on a jack uh, and then that the jack either failed or the car wasn't properly secured and it fell on their foot versus an indirect, which is more of an axial load with a twisting on a plantar flexed foot, which really results in more of the kind of Liz Frank sort of injury. Um, so again, uh, although the mechanism isn't always important, uh, it's, it's good to know that, uh, that crush injuries can result in this, but also a plantar flex foot uh, with an axial load can also cause a tarsal metatarsal uh, fracture dislocation. And so when you're evaluating x-rays, and I think that this is key for uh, whether you're in fracture rounds or you're consulted on a patient. Thank you all for listening to that episode on kind of calc and foot trauma if you haven't already hit the subscribe button and please tell one friend about this podcast that would help us out a bunch and please go leave a rating or a review that would help us out as well until next time